All right, Ephesians 1, here we go. Chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. Over the last, we've started three weeks ago, we've we got two verses down. So we're, <laughs> we're going fast. Uh, so if you're new, check it out. So Ephesians is written by a guy named Paul. He was an apostle. And um, he's writing this letter uh, to really um, instruct new converts in what it looks like to live out their faith rooted and anchor in God. And so what Paul actually does is for the first three chapters, he basically says, this is who God is, and this is what he's like, and this is who you are because of him. And then he transitions in chapter four, and he's like, now live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So it transitions, and then it moves into Christian behavior, and how do we deal with prayer? How do we deal with marriage? How do we deal with our kids and coworkers? And how do we stay together as a community? Um, And it's all sorts of life instructions, but it comes as a response to who God is and what he's like and what he's already done and who you already are. And so what we talked about two weeks ago is that much of this, this, this story or this letter is, um, is Paul dragging us into who we already are, right? So he calls us saints. We are holy saints, set apart, sacred, power washed from the inside out because of Christ. And what Paul doesn't say is, okay, uh, you're a sinner, now become a saint. He says, no, you are a saint because of the work of the cross. Now become who you already are. Like, like when I, a couple years ago, 10 years ago almost, uh, I got married. Um, I know when I got married, but in uh, 2007, uh, Pastor Bill actually officiated our, our wedding. He said, uh, you're a husband. So I had to become a husband. I didn't have any clue how to be a husband. In fact, all the premarital stuff, it did not help because I had spent 20 something years figuring out how to be single. And then you get thrusted into this new relationship where you're supposed to die to yourself and dying is not very fun. Um, anyways, that's not, mar- marriage is more than dying to yourself. <laughs> most it really it really is it really it really is um (laughs) okay before I get sidetracked let's just read the bible (laughs) Ephesians chapter one here's what I'm going to do I want to give you just that this is where we're going okay I'm going to read the scripture and then I want to I just want to give you context today and then ask what the implications are for us today. So I'm gonna read it, showcase how beautiful this word is um, by giving you kind of the background of what's being not said but understood by the first century listeners and then apply that to today and then we'll we'll pray and then we'll go get um, pizza nista. You're all invited, okay? We're gonna go get pizza for starting line. So there we go. So verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's his intro. And now he's gonna do a one long run-on sentence. And this is Paul's doxology, his introduction. It's all worship. It's all worship. So this is grand, this is eloquent, and this is beautiful. So let's just read this. We'll read a couple of verses together. Verse three. Praise be to the, to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, 
in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And we'll stop right there. That's pretty amazing. It's, you need a dictionary. You need some type of biblical understanding. There's so much here, and there's, there are so many Christian words um, that if you're just picking this up, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to read, and I get that. So it took me a while to understand what's going on. So if you're, if you're like, what the heck is he saying? Uh, you're in a good place, because I, I had to figure that out too. Um, but today, uh, all I want to do is just give you some context about the first few verses. So we're going to go to verse 3 through 5, and then next week, Bill's going to kind of continue the rest of the passage that I read all the way up to 10, because there's this, there's this long word that's, that's basically to bring unity to all things, and it's absolutely beautiful for the mission of what Jesus is doing, because um, some of us are like, gosh, um, I got my, my, my work life together, but I don't got my spiritual life together, and, and so much of what God's doing is just, he's summing up, he's bringing all things together for good. Is that, is that cool? So we'll talk about that next week. But for now, we're gonna read this. Uh, we're gonna kind of go into a history lesson. So put on your thinking caps. Uh, we're gonna, for those of us that love history, which I'm a history nerd, um, this is gonna be exciting for the rest of us. Just hang in there for like 10 minutes, okay? Um, so <clears throat> history. Uh, the, the Old Testament ends in Malachi, and then the New Testament begins in the book of Matthew. And between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of distance and gap of history of what actually happens in the world. And during that 400 year, four, those 400 years, um, s- some significant things happened, like empires were created and empires were taken over. For example, how many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Raise your hand, show it. Let's just participate. All right, I'm not asking your greatest sin, raise your hand. I'm asking Alexander the Great. <laughs> We'll get to the sins in just a second. So uh, anyway, so Alexander the Great came into power and he conquered the known world during that intertestamental period. And um, he not only conquered the world, he, he thought it was his, his quest and mission to Hellenize or bring Hellenism to the known world. He didn't want to just conquer with an army. He wanted to bring Greek worldview and Greek culture to the world. He wanted to bring the Greek lifestyle, language, narratives and stories, philosophy, art, work, beauty, gods and temples, arenas. He wanted to bring all of that to the rest of the world and influence the world because it was, he thought it was uh, Greek culture and Hellenism was a gift to the world. And so what, what Alexander the Great would do, it was not enough for him to just conquer territory. He would establish all sorts of things that would indoctrinate new people into the Greek way of existence. So Hellenism was the word used to describe Greek culture and philosophy, okay? Um, so Greek culture and philosophy let me, uh, was their, their perspective and their view. And so what, what he would do is he would bring, he would go into a new territory and he would establish temples all over the place to various Greek gods. And these temples were places of worship, they would have statues dedicated to the various gods. In Ephesus, you had uh, Diana, or r- later translated to Artemis, which we'll talk about in the near future. But you have all these temples that were established to um, 
instruct people in the Greek way of viewing the world, the cosmos. How humans got here were through cosmic battles between gods, distant deities that had names, that had stories and mythology all around them. So he would establish temples. And then he would also establish arenas that, where uh, gladiators would contend and the, the masses all over the Roman Empire, well, Roman, the Greek Empire, uh, would be distracted by entertainment. And that's what you do, right? That's what political powers do. They just, they create all sorts of distractions and entertainment to keep you focused while political chaos is going on. Anyone, this is thousands of years <laughs> old. Again, this is ancient culture, okay? So just stay with me as we talk about Hellenism, ancient Greek culture. We'll just stay there because Ephesus, we're talking about 2,000 years ago. Nothing that we can relate to today. But uh, then you have theaters where there was drama and poetry and philosophy and all sorts of worldview that was shaped in these theaters. Again, it's about entertainment. And then they would have gymnasiums. And gymnasiums were not like 24-hour fitness or CrossFit gyms today. They were more like a country club. This is where business transactions would happen. Uh, this is where the youth would go and be educated in philosophy and art and all sorts of things. Also competing with games and, and working out. You'd walk around these gyms, gymnasiums naked, naked because um, it was driven by the Greek ideal. And the Greeks believed that the human body was an object to be wor worshipped because humans were at the center of the world. And uh, Greeks believed that the human worth was found in achievement and beauty. So Hellenism was all about human perfection. The ideal. You had to look a certain way. You had to act a certain way. You had to think a certain way. And that ideal was celebrated. Anything that missed the ideal of perfection was pushed off into the margins of society. Again, this is ancient culture. Humans were the center of the world. And in Greek art, the naked body was the highest form of beauty to be worshipped. And value came from your beauty, your achievement, your strength, your intellect, your wealth. Nothing we can relate to, of course. But there was a quote that said, glory won by achievement was believed to be the straightest path to heaven. That, so that's the Hellenistic mindset, the culture. This is what uh, was surrounding um, for hundreds of years, uh, the, Ro the empire that was before the Roman Empire. So this, this, I this philosophy, this human perfection, achievement, um, the ideal body, the perfect body, and anything outside of perfection was pushed to the margins. And then we know history. Eventually the Greeks go out and eventually the Romans come in. And what the Romans do is they just, rather than recreating the wheel, they just take all of the Greek Hellenistic worldview and culture and make it Roman. And so Hellenism in the first century was alive and well all throughout the Roman Empire, but especially in Ephesus, where you saw temples to various Greek gods that were given Roman names, where you see arenas and theaters and all sorts of gymnasiums all throughout Ephesus. And this is the cultural um, historical backdrop that we have as we read the letter from Paul in the first century to the Ephesian church. And so the Romans took their philosophy, took their practices, and the Hellenistic culture became alive and well in the first century. Now, here's what happens. As hundreds of years go on, and as the Hellenistic culture celebrates the ideal of perfection and everything uh, about being about beauty and achievement, what happens when you find human worth based on value of achievement, beauty, perfection, um, is that uh, anyone that doesn't meet that standard 
it has significant implications for their life. So anything that doesn't meet the standard of perfection, there are significant implications for what that looks like in life. And so this got down to a tragic practice, a tragic practice called the exposure of infants or the exposing of infants. In the first century, when Paul writes this letter, it was legal for Roman citizens to, uh, for a mother and father to discard unwanted babies for any reason at all if it was imperfect, if it was deformed, if it was handicapped, or if it was a, a girl. And the practice was they would go outside the city walls and mom or dad would walk up to a nearby wilderness mountainside and leave their infant, their discarded, unwanted child, and expose them to nature and let them die. This was legally allowed. For any reason, they could just let their child die in the wilderness. As a, uh, a direct result of this idea of human achievement, of Hellenistic culture, that you didn't want anything that was not perfect. You wanted perfection. Any blemish, any uh, handicap, any deformity, uh, if it was a female, you, they would discard that unwanted child in a nearby mountainside. They would go up the mountain and leave it. And there's all sorts of quotes that we have, ancient documents outside of the scripture that prove this mindset. I just want to give you this mindset because if we can understand the first century culture of Ephesus and the mindset, when we read the scripture again in just a moment, it's going to unlock all sorts of amazing truths and realities. So here's a couple of quotes. This guy, uh, there's a guy named Hilarion, okay, which is hilarious. It's, his name's Hilarion. And what he writes is absolutely not funny. But Hilarion writes to his wife. He's visiting, he's a business, doing business in Alexandria. He lives in, uh, somewhere in the Roman Empire, or this is 1 BC. So he writes this, he says, no that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg, you, beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child. His wife's pregnant. And as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. Good luck to you. When you have a child, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. All right. It's like a laundry list. Hey, you know, don't forget to pick up the eggs. And if it's a girl, throw it out. And then there's... there's uh, there's a Seneca, a Stoic philosopher. He says, we slaughter a fierce ox. We strangle a mad dog. We plunge the knife into sickly cattle lest they taint the herd. Children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. This is practice. This is practice and this is the narrative. This is the mindset, the worldview of Hellenism. And then go to Socrates for me. Um, so there's <laughs> Socrates. Okay, I know. I wasn't, uh, I'm just quoting Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Oh, it's such a good movie. Okay, um, the children of inferior parents or any child of the other that is born defective, they'll hide in a secret and unknown place as it is appropriate. It is, if indeed the guardian breed is to remain pure. Can you believe this? And lastly, um, this guy, uh, what, this guy is a second century gynecologist. Um, his name's, I forget his name right now, but it's on the next one. But he says this. So he's well known, first and second century, lived in Ephesus. He's a doctor. And he writes this article that we have from the first and second century on how, for, how midwives can identify whether or not a child is worth rearing. And this is, this is what you do. The child should be perfect in all its parts, limbs, and senses, and have passages that are not obstructed, including the ears, nose, throat, and the urethra. Its natural movements be neither slow nor feeble. Its limbs bend and stretch. Its size, shape, uh, and shape should 
be, should be appropriate, and it should respond to natural stimuli. And by conditions contrary to those mentioned, the infant not worth rearing is recognized. So a second century doctor saying, this is, make sure it's perfect. If it's not perfect, then you just get rid of it. So this is the culture. And this is what happens when you live in a culture that values perfection, the ideal beauty, success and significance by achievement and wealth. And when you push all of the imperfections of society, culture, and people to the margins, it leads you towards, well, human life has value based on what you look like, what you can produce. So this was a practice in Ephesians that led to Ephesus becoming the center for slave trade in the first century. So what would happen is, by the time Paul gets there, and this is why, by the way, Paul will write to slaves and masters, because Ephesus is the center of slave trade. Um, it was the dominant um, uh, industry of its day. And so what would happen is, moms and dads who didn't want their children, they would go up to the mountainside, leave their child to die of exposure, but other men and women would go up to the mountainside take the child that was living and raise them up to be slaves and prostitutes because it was cheaper to raise a slave, raise up a slave than to buy a slave at the right age. It was cheaper to, to raise a child into slavery. It's easier that way than to simply, and cheaper than to buy a slave, make a slave at, that, at, at an older age. So it was cheaper, it became the center of, of, of the slave movement in the Roman Empire. And so culture said anything with a blemish, defect, or deformity was to be discarded and not worth rearing. And that's where we get this letter. So we get this letter to uh, a first century house church movement. So Paul would go around the Roman Empire uh, planting these little tiny communities, 10, 20, 30 people in houses all over Philippi and Coloss and Corinth. And then he gets to Ephesus and there's this movement of God and they're, they're meeting in houses. And what you have to understand, and I, I want to visualize this. So all of you guys over here, imagine that this letter was specifically written to a group of like us right here. And that the letter, we, uh, we would get this letter and then we would we'd pass it on to our friends and our friends were like over here. And we didn't have a big enough space for all of us to meet, but we would get this letter from Paul who we knew. We had to relate, or we heard of Paul. And in this little tiny community right here, what, what we know is true according to the text is that there are slaves and there are masters. There are Jews and then there are Gentiles which had all sorts of hostility among them. There were pagans, Artemis worshipers, and faithful Jews. There are people that worshiped other gods recently, but they had become converted. And then there are male and female. Men and women did not have the same equality in the first century. Females were considered an inferior breed of humanity to the Hellenistic culture. So you have all this diversity right here in this group. And you have a cultural mindset that says your value is based on what you look like, what family you come from, how much money you have. Can't relate, can we? And then we pick up this story. And I just, I want you to put that backdrop, that, all that cultural backdrop. And I want you to read this for the first century. I want you to think, what, what did they hear? 
reading this text, our little community over here, what did we hear when, when Paul says, verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. Do you see how subversive this is? That this is a counter-narrative to the other narrative Hellenism was feeding all people and culture and community. The first, first century li listeners would have heard a completely different narrative to the life that they had assumed up until this point. You see, all the other Greek gods made you work and live up to an unattainable ideal. You never knew where you stood with the gods because they were angry, they were distant, they were uninterested in you. And Paul says, praise be to God the Father, our Lord. God's like a dad. And he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, wh what you need to know is in the, we have this ancient document called the Ephesian letters, um, which was this letter of spells, curses, and all these little things that people would practice sorcery in the first century. And um, what people would do is they would buy pieces of the scroll and they would either curse their, their enemies with it or they would pray that the gods would hear their prayer if they got this piece of scroll and they prayed this right prayer and they had enough money and they had enough sacrifice and they said it the right way, then they would get this blessing on their life. And, and what Paul immediately does is you're already blessed. You're already blessed. And then, and then it goes on. And, 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 and it says, uh, in this oppressive culture that abandons babies for any imperfection or any blemish that's Ephesians is overwhelmed by an industry built around slavery, the byproducts of unwanted, abandoned, and discarded children. They believe the gods were distant, angry, and disappointed, and the cultural worldview said they didn't measure up, and their gods were gods that would leave you up on top of the mountainside as infants, punishing you for your failures, your faults, and your imperfections. They wouldn't be debating whether it's predestination or free will. They wouldn't debate theology. They would have wept. They would have wept. They would have said, I'm not discarded. I'm picked up. God, God loves me. The God of the creator universe, the God of the cre creation loves me. It says um, to be holy and blameless in his sight. We're holy is to be set apart. We've talked about this. Set apart, sacred, power washed from the inside out, but blameless. Blameless translates to be without defect or blemish. Do you see how beautiful this is? The way that God sees the Ephesian church is they're without, they're without any imperfections. They're already viewed with imperfection that, that the, the culture says you have to live to this perfection and God says, no, 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 I make you perfect. I see you perfect in Christ. And so they're reading, you, they would have been weeping over this. They would have been weeping, recognizing that they're blameless. They're without defect or blemish and that God's love, in God's love, he adopts them 
through his pleasure and will, adopts them as sons and daughters. They would, have, they would have wept because they would have heard that their God, the Christian God, is a God who climbs up the mountain and picks up the discarded babies and says, my boy, you're home. My little girl, you're mine. I choose you. This is the Christian God. This is the Christian God. This is, this is what we get in just reading a couple of verses with some background. The powerful, subversive text that transforms ancient cultural background and philosophy. Do you think we can relate to Hellenism? Please tell me you, get, you can see that. It's, I'm not just being facetious. facetious? <laughs> One of those words. This is what's so powerful. It's so beautiful. And then, but, but, but it gets even more powerful. It gets even, it gets, it's going to get, you like, you know, like Jay-Z says, it's like a, it's a 10. We're going to go up here though. We're going to get to 11. Okay. So here's, yes, I'm quoting Jay-Z. So we're going to go, <laughs> right? Okay. And Chance the Rapper nominated best new artist. Come on, get, come on, anyone? Grammys? Breaking rules. Okay. Anyways. All right. I should just say Star Wars just to get that out. So Star Wars coming December, December, um, Last Jedi. Okay, so we're going to bring it up. Okay, so Paul says this phrase. So I, I was reading this text uh, while my son was napping yesterday next to my wife, and I just started weeping with this part. So Paul says adoption to sonship. That's a legal phrase. Okay, so... We kind of get adoption, but what we don't get is Paul's using a very specific Roman legal term that has probably the most significant implications for what the gospel really is about in this one phrase. Adoption translates in what he's talking about to son placing, okay? So in the first century, when Paul's writing this, you wanted boys as children because women were seen as inferior and they couldn't actually carry on the family name or take over the the estate or inheritance. They didn't have the rights in culture and society for that. So you needed a boy to continue on the family, to continue on the estate and the inheritance and the name that you possess. So the naming of a child of having a boy was so significant in Roman culture and in time. And so um, if you were uh, a husband and a wife of, of some type of success with an estate and inheritance um, uh, and didn't have any biological children, you would son place or adopt the legal term, uh, a servant or even a slave that was part of your household. And this is a practice, it's son placing. And this person would carry on your estate and your inheritance. They would take on your name and continue on the, the privileges and the responsibilities of your family. And so um, in the first century, check this out, you could disown your biological children. You can disown them for any reason. Sons could be disowned by their fathers. It was their right as a father to do that. But you could never disown an adopted son, ever. It was illegal. It was, you, you had no legal power to do that. So what a family would do, let's say you wanted to adopt a slave from your household to carry on your name, and your inheritance, the first thing you'd have to do is make it public knowledge in the community that the father would say, I'm gonna adopt so-and-so. It was a legal process. The whole community would know. And let's say this person was a slave. The first thing the father would do is cancel the debt of the slave. Cancels the debt. 
makes them free. And they're no longer, uh, they're no longer slaves. They're now free men under this, this, this adopting, this son placing. And then from there, uh, this son is given a new name. It becomes his new legal name. He's given new responsibilities, new privileges. He's given, he's given a brand new family. And now he's invited in to carry on the responsibility and task of the family. And he has been adopted. And it's everyone knows. And that is his new reality. Son placing. Do you see how significant this is? Paul writes to a bunch of men and women. Some slaves, some masters, discarded. Gentiles, Jews, some have significance, some have no significance at all. And he says, in Christ, your debt's paid. You've been given a new name. You've been given a family. All the isolation and loneliness, no, you're part of the family. You can never be disowned no matter what. You'll never be forsaken because you're in. You get to share in the inheritance of Christ. This is what Paul says Christ does and this is what happens to us when we become Christians, when we confess that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. We are given all of this stuff from God. Do you see how significant this is? So when we read this, blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven, in the heavenly realms, uh, we're chosen before the creation of the world to be holy, without blemish, perfect. We are loved and predestined, adopted and into sonship and daughtership. God, in Christ, our debts are canceled. We're part of the family. We have a new name. And this is God's will and pleasure. In love, he does this. Do you see how significant this is in the first century? But what about today? Do you see how significant this is today? Do you see how significant this text is for us today. The implications are so, so powerful. The first thing I wanna say, what does it mean for us to embody this message and to, to read this and recognize it? The first thing you're gonna, I wanna say is what Paul will do over and over again is simply introduce this idea that your view of God shapes the way you see yourself and the world around you, okay? Listen to this real quick. This is so important as Christians to understand because some of us carry around the wrong view of God. We're like the Greeks. God's distant, uninterested, angry. He's disappointed. Some of us are here, and whether we know this or not, we've been projecting our earthly father's wound, the, fa the fathers that we have here, onto the heavenly father. This is what I did for so much of my life. Yeah, I believe God loves me, but I have to prove it. I have to show him how hard I'll work for all that he's done because I messed up big time. So I'm gonna work harder and faster and, and keep running and make sure we, we start a church and we feed the homeless. We, I'm gonna do all these great things that you should do with a pure heart, but I'm doing it because deep down inside, I don't think that I'm his boy and that's my daddy and he loves me just as I am. So that view shaped the way I saw myself. My worth is based on production, significance, the approval of others. Do you see how Paul will spend three chapters saying over and over again, this is who God is. This is who God is. He loves you so much. This is what he's already done for you. Here is who you are over and over again because unless you accept it, unless you experience the love of God over and over again and are reminded you will live out of your orphan slaved ways. I have a, a friend who... I heard this story and it, it just stuck in my mind. He adopted some kids from Ethiopia. 
and we were at this gathering and he, I was, we, somebody asked him, what's it like? And he, he shared this one brief story that just wrecked me. He said, after years of them, these kids being in our family, um, if they were at this party, they'd be staring at the food over here. And they would be anxious about it. They'd be wondering how much is left. And if people were walking back and forward, they would, they would kind of have this anxiety about the food because they, they, they experienced food scarcity in their life. And they were early on, they realized that there might not be enough food. And so we have this little phrase, this catchphrase in our, our family, and it's this, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. Breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. Breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. You see, my friend John had to remind his kids that there will always be enough in his household for them. He had to remind them that he's a good dad and there will always be enough for his kids. And it took a, a saying, a discipline. He told, he told these stories of breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all that. They still have an anxiety because they were conditioned through their old ways that they had no power over. And in many ways, this is what Paul is doing in the text over and over again. You are saints, you're holy, you're blameless, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everything is yours, you have an inheritance. You have been sealed, brothers and sisters, do you get it? God loves you, period, that's it. You don't have to do anything else. Your view of God here will shape how you live here. Some of us need to be reminded, breakfast, snack, love, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. Because otherwise we'll just keep going back to our old ways. Do you see how significant this is? That God loves you as you are, not as you should be. And that's what this passage is saying. According to the gospel, he says, brothers and sisters, this is my boy, this is my girl. That's paid new name, new family, welcome home, never gonna be disowned again. It says that um, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It says that angels, demons, past, present. It says height, depth, spiritual things created or whatever. Nothing can separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus, period. Do we get it? And let me just say this. Some of you will say amen, just like I did in church, because we get it here. But you need to experience it for yourself. It's not enough for you to just recognize it mentally. You have to surrender to the all-powerful, furious love of God that wants to ambush you like an ocean because that's the kind of God we serve and worship. And if you don't get anything in Ephesians, get simply this statement, you are loved as you are and not as you should be. This is the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ and all of the New Testament. And if you have any other perspective, it's a lie or an idol, and you need to surrender that to God and repent and accept the love he has for you. That's one, one thing I wanna pray for today is for some of us to experience it. And we're gonna do some ministry in just a second. Um, and I just need to remind you that our God is the God who climbs up to the mountainside, took your debt, died for you so that you could live. And you don't need to be convinced of some in intellectual truth. You simply need to believe and accept it and experience it for yourself. The second thing I want to just encourage you today with is this. Um, I think the implications of this text is we see that many of us have bought into the lie of Hellenism. And Hellenism is alive and well in our lives. And we, for some reason, uh, have surrendered to a culture and a society that, that makes us feel like we have to reach this unattainable ideal. And so some of us here have starved ourselves 
Some of us here are working ourselves to death. Some of us here are, are finding value and worth by how much money we have, who we know, how much we, uh, the, the relationships we have. Um, we, we are defining ourselves by our past, our accomplishments, our education, um, our, uh, whatever these things are. What you have to recognize that if there's anything you can read in Ephesians is that you already are enough. You're worthy, worthy, your value and worth doesn't come from anything you can possibly do. It comes from who you already are. So stop it. <laughs> stop striving. Stop striving for that airbrushed ideal. Don't starve yourself anymore or cut yourself or deal with the anxiety and depression because you don't look like that person who's been edited and photoshopped. Brothers and sisters, be free from all of that because you are loved just as you are and there's nothing you can do to earn it. Are you hearing me? All of that energy going into doing something else, you guys just release it. You're no longer defined by your failures, your screw-ups, your habits, or your past. You're free. And lastly, I just want to say this. You don't have to live that way anymore. If there's anything that we'll see in the book of Ephesians, it's that you don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to live that way anymore. I'm reminded of that scene in Good Will Hunting. When you've seen the Good Will Hunting, the end, when Robin Williams is telling Matt Damon um, what he's saying over and over again, all this stuff, it's not you. Matt Damon's just pushing him back. Do you remember the scene? He just resists it. And brothers and sisters, stop resisting it. You don't have to live that way anymore. All the excuses that are coming out, all the excuses right now that are coming out in your head, you, you can just surrender it. You can just accept it. You don't have to find value in all the other things. You're already worthy. He's made you worthy. Can you receive it? Amen?